Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that day by day thou art our defender and our exceedingly great reward. We thank thee that we have the blessed assurance in all things that underneath are thine everlasting arms, that thou wilt never leave us nor forsake us so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I shall not fear what man can do unto me. Arm us, therefore, by thy Holy Spirit, and make us strong unto the end that in Christ's name we may prevail and conquer. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> we shall continue our studies of the creeds and councils of the early church with a study of Constantinople, the first Constantinople in 381, the first council of Constantinople. Constantinople against the hatred of certainty. Our scripture will be from Galatians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than ye have received, let him be accursed. The Family Weekly for January 22, 1967 carried an interesting interview with actor Robert Walker, Jr., by Jack Ryan. In the report of this interview, there was this interesting, very brief paragraph, and I quote, After a film, Walker retreats to his new Malibu home with his wife, Ellie, a former June Taylor dancer he married in 1961, and their two children, Michael Four and David Three. We have a beachy home, Walker says. We're beach people, sun, sand, and scuba. But if this house ever ties up, takes us over, ties us down, well, we'll burn it down, unquote. This statement summarizes the view of humanism, of existentialism, perhaps better than any other single statement. Humanism is characterized by a hatred of roots, of certainties. 
of any times of truth itself. As one leftist existentialist student remarked to me on one occasion, I hate people who know anything. This attitude is basic to modern revolutionary movements, and it is the foundation of revolutionary activity. There is a deliberate hatred of any certainty, any truth, any roots, any ties. And so every revolution makes all things that are sure and established a target for destruction. If you wonder why it is that some of these revolutionary people are so hostile to things that certainly represent great cultural achievements, landmarks of civilization, you must recognize that it is their total hatred of certainty and of roots. The past must be destroyed so that man can make his future as his own God. This hatred of certainty was a major factor in the Roman Empire at the time of our Lord's life. It was basic to its subsequent anti-Christianity. We meet with this relativism, this hatred of certainty and of truth in Pilate. And it appears in Pilate's contemptuous statement, what is truth? Truth was an irrelevant consideration. Humanism, thus, was widespread and in the saddle when the early church entered the empire. And humanism very rapidly began to infiltrate the church and attempt to take over this great enemy. We saw last week in our analysis of the Council of Nicaea the confrontation with humanism at that council. Humanism did all that it could to turn the biblical certainty into uncertainty, to reduce every doctrine to vagueness, to make, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity very vague, the doctrine of salvation uncertain, the doctrine of creation, mythical. To reduce every biblical doctrine to uncertainty in order to replace it with a humanistic certainty. Walker expressed it very well. If this house ever takes us over and ties us down, well, we'll burn it down. Burn down your house ties you down. Burn down your marriage. All responsibilities as ties which restrain and therefore impede you in your quest for godhood in the humanistic sense. The early councils were called to meet this challenge of humanism. Now when we speak of the early ecumenical councils of the Christian church, we must realize that there is no real relationship between those councils and our present-day councils of the church. 
first of all, the purpose of the early councils was to defend and establish the truth, not to create a unity. This, then, was the fundamental point of difference between the councils of that day and the church councils of today. Truth, not unity. If there were to be unity, it had to be on the foundation of truth. And every council of today is premised on the desire for unity at the price of truth. Thus, between the councils of the early church and our councils today, there is total warfare. Second, the early councils had as their purpose the defense of the faith, not the establishment of an institution in a more secure basis. Our councils today are church-oriented. The councils of the early church were oriented to the faith. We saw last week how the men who came to Nicaea were battle-scarred men. 318 men met in 325 A.D. Men who came there with their arms paralyzed by the application of red-hot irons to the nerves which control the arms. Their right eyes dug out or their right arms severed for refusing to take an oath of allegiance to the emperor and renouncing Christ. They were battle-scarred men. A little more than half a century later in 381, when the Council of Constantinople met, there were no visible signs of battle, but the men had faced an equally severe battle and a more subtle one. Now the empire was ostensibly Christian, but it was actually Arianism, humanism in the name of Christianity. They were no longer killing the saints of God because this made heroes of them, this made martyrs of them. They were instead prosecuting them on various false charges, impugning their moral character, trying to make them look morally degraded and contemptible in the eyes of people so that the men who came to Constantinople were men who had suffered imprisonment, fines, confiscations of property, disenfranchisement as criminals, men who had been subjected to all kinds of outrages whose purpose it had been to discredit them. 318 met at Nicaea, 150 at Constantinople. They came to deal again with Arianism. Arianism, which was basically humanism, deistic, rationalistic, Arianism, which represented statism, 
which saw the state as man's savior and politics as the means to salvation. And they were not concerned with peacemaking. As they gathered together, they made no attempt to say to the opposition party, to the humanists, come, let us get together and find a common meeting ground. You give a little and we will give a little and we will come to a unity in the church. Instead, they echoed the words of Paul and called these humanists in the church wolves in their synodical letter. And they expanded the Nicene Creed one step further to its present form in order to counteract the heresies they were dealing with. And then in their first canon, they condemned formally the heresies by name. There were five kinds of heresies that the Council of Constantinople condemned. First, Sabellianism or Marcellianism, doctrines concerning God, which basically are one with our modern evolutionary thinking. The Sabellians and Marcellians were people who claimed to be good Christians, but they were basically humanists. They defined God as the great monad, the original substance of the universe. And they declared that instead of God having created all the being of the universe out of nothing, all the universe and all men had simply evolved and emanated out of God's substance, that God in himself was original substance, unproductive, mindless, meaningless, until he evolved. And therefore God was not a conscious God. He was not a personal God. He was not a God who could speak. He was therefore a mindless, wordless God. The universe and all men were simply expansions of God's substance. And the end of the world would be the contraction of all being back into the original monad. This then was Sabellianism and Marcellianism, forms of Arianism, humanism, pretending to be Christianity and infiltrating the church. The Council of Constantinople condemned them. The second form of heresy was that which dealt with the doctrine of God the Son, eunomianism, E-U-N-O-M-I-A-N-I-S-M. Eunomianism denied the divinity of God the Son because they believed that God was incoherent, that he was mindless, that he was unconscious, he could not therefore express himself. Since they did not have a doctrine of God as true God, therefore they could not have a doctrine of God the Son. Therefore the Council of Constantinople added to the Nicene Creed those passages which spelled out more clearly 
the deity of Jesus Christ. The third kind of heresy condemned dealt with the Holy Ghost. This came from the Semiarians, the Macedonians, the New Matamachi, those whose name indicates that they spoke evil against the Spirit. These men were followers of Macedonius, the Bishop of Constantinople, who declared that the Holy Spirit was only a preacher. God did not have any connection with this world. He did not speak in this world through the prophets and the various writers of Scripture because God cannot speak. God has no relationship to this world. He cannot reveal himself. So that, in effect, if there be a God, he has no possibility of associating himself in any way with man or speaking to man. Therefore, the council added to the creed, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and the Son, who spoke through the prophets. But for the council also condemned the Apollinarians, A-P-O-L-L-I-N-A-R-I-N-S, Apollinarians. The Apollinarians had the reputation of being orthodox and very zealously orthodox because they emphasized Christ's deity, supposedly, so heavily. They spoke about God the Son as being so completely God that they could not accept the reality of the Incarnation. For them, it was impossible for God to become truly man because this would involve putting on sin. For them, finitude, creatureliness, humanity itself was sin. Whereas, according to Scripture, God created all things wholly good. And sin is not the fact that we are human, but that man, by his moral transgression of God's law, placed himself in opposition to God. In effect, the Apollinarians, while affirming the deity of Christ, were denying the Incarnation. They were denying the virgin birth. They were denying the reality of our salvation. And they were saying, indeed, there is a God the Son, but he has no relationship to this world. And so Christ was for them only an idea of something that was vaguely out there in the beyond. Thus, while claiming to be very zealous for the faith, it was, in effect, absolutely denying the reality of the faith. The creed, therefore, was expanded with statements concerning the Incarnation to rule out the Apollinarians. Fifth, the unity of the Trinity was affirmed, its consubstantiality. And in their first canon, they affirmed the unity of the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The 
Nicene Creed as it was originally written and as it was amended or added to by the First Council of Constantinople in 381 concluded with a passage of anathemas. Echoing the words of St. Paul in Galatians 1, 8, and 9, the Council declared that all those who denied this true faith, who sought to pervert it and to destroy it, were anathema, were accursed of God unless they repented. Subsequently, these anathemas were dropped from the Nicene Creed because they were all summed up in the Athanasian Creed. But unhappily, in the Victorian era, the Athanasian Creed was gradually bypassed as rather unpleasant to recite in church, don't you know? It isn't nice to say nasty things about other people. And so it was dropped from the Book of Common Prayer of the Church of England and from various other service books. But it is impossible to affirm a faith if we affirm its opposite. Nor can one defend a faith without waging war against that which opposes it. Anathemas, therefore, are basic to creedalism. And the anathema pronounced by the Athanasian Creed, summing up all the anathemas of all who deny the apostles and the Nicene and Athanasian creeds, is a fitting climax to creedalism. Today we see an extensive attempt again by the same false humanism to free man from the biblical certainties to burn down the house of faith. We see again the same hatred of certainty as it comes from Scripture. And it is a, an attempt to flee from God. But flight from God is an impossibility. Man was created by God. And every fiber in man's being represents the handiwork of the Creator. So that man cannot renounce God without renouncing himself. The psalmist made it clear that though he fled to the uttermost parts of the earth, behold, thou art there. Though I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. There is no escaping God. Anywhere in the universe or anywhere in our being. But Robert Walker says, If this house ever takes us over, ties us down, well, we'll burn it down. But this is futility. No man can burn down God's creation. And as long as we live in this creation and as long as we are God's creatures, which is forever, we cannot burn down God's handiwork. We cannot burn down God's house around us. The existentialist, rootless, humanistic man is a myth. No such person can exist. And the only burning which existentialist man shall know 
is God's burning. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Savior, for thy word, thine infallible truth, for godly saints of old who fought and defended the faith and gave us an inheritance so glorious. And we thank thee, our Father, that thou hast called us and made us heirs and partakers of thine eternal kingdom and given us so blessed an assurance and so marvelous a destiny in time and in eternity. Make us therefore confident and bold, our Father, that we might be more than conquerors through him that loved us, even Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. Yes, the Nicene Creed in its completed form which represents the various councils including Chalcedon as they developed it. It is basically an expansion of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe one Catholic and Apostolic Church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Is that recited in any other than the Church? Yes, there are a number of churches which use it. Quite a number. Lutherans do. Uh, some Presbyterians do. And uh, the Catholics, of course, use the Nicene Creed. There will be minor variations in various churches, but the basic meaning is the same. Yes? Yes. As I indicated earlier, all the councils now are thinking in terms of the institution, not the faith, and unity, not truth. And this has been true for a long time now.
so that every council today only compounds the evil. Yes. Uh, well, that, of course, the uh, common prayer book. Uh, yes. First, we would find the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed, I will uh, place in your hands fairly soon. You can find it in various manuals of the creeds. The Lutherans, I believe, still use it so that you could find it in a Lutheran service book. But uh, we shall have, when the series uh, is concluded, all of the creeds mimeographed and uh, given to each of you. Yes? Was the uh, Catholics claim that the last line of the Lord's Prayer Yes, uh, that is not true. There are two versions of the Lord's Prayer given to us in uh, the New Testament. One is in Matthew and the other in Luke. In the version in Matthew, the uh, doxology at the end is given. In the second version, which our Lord gave on another occasion, he did not include the doxology, but went right on to an exposition of its meaning without giving the doxology. Both versions are biblical. And it is ridiculous to argue uh, that the shorter version has to be the only version. There is not the slightest ground for any... uh, such conclusion. Our Lord gave the longer version in the Sermon on the Mount. And in a later sermon, which Luke records, he repeated portions of the Sermon on the Mount on another occasion, uh, but abbreviated it and went on to deal with other material, other subjects as well. Creedalism is, well, creed comes from the word credo, I believe. A creed is a statement of faith. Creedalism is simply the uh, assertion or the condition of moving in terms of a specific body of belief, of doctrine. Well, creed comes from the word credo, I believe. A creed is a statement of faith. Creedalism is simply the uh, assertion or the condition of moving in terms of a specific body of belief, of doctrine. Well, then I'm writing to jump, I'm right, jumping to the conclusion that the word credence, if you give credence to something, it means you give belief to it. Yes, right. I just, I Yes, credence comes from uh, credo as well. The same root. Yes. Yes, in just a moment. The source uh, in Luke for the Lord's Prayer.
Yes, chapter 11, verses 2, 3, 4. And he immediately goes on in verse 5 to deal with the meaning of prayer. So that he stops at the conclusion of the petitions in order to develop the subject of the meaning of petition. Yes. In the Bible, well, I don't know if it's in the Bible, I'm curious if it is in the Bible, that God demands of our responsibility for justice and mercy to the poor. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't place the question properly, but I'm curious if it is in the Bible that he demands us to take care of poor and give mercy and justice. Yes. There is a great deal in the Bible concerning our relationship to the poor. Now, it would take quite a while to go through all the laws that deal with the subject, but first of all, we are commanded to be charitable, we are commanded to be merciful, we are commanded to give justice, but we are never permitted to subsidize thoughtfulness or uh, laziness and I think the biblical perspective is summed up very well in Paul's statement he that doth not work let him not eat which means if he will not work let him starve on the other hand the poor who were ready to work were to be provided for And in the early church, this was summed up by a regulation whereby any member who was unemployed was to be given uh, charity for one day, and then the church provided work for him. One of the members or the church as a group, something was done to enable him to work. There was this obligation but there was no obligation to keep him uh, as a charity case. Now this basically sums up the biblical perspective. What type of justice? Well, uh, justice is a big word and the uh, justice in relationship to what? Well, uh, I read something that a Yes, there are a great many passages in the prophets where God condemns the unjustice, uh, unjust treatment of the poor uh, during the times of ungodly monarchs. And these passages are extensively used by the uh, social gospel preachers. What these passages refer to are very real abuses of the poor by the courts. The courts were stacked against godly men and against poor men. Therefore, one of the major problems dealt with by the prophets was the ungodliness of the courts, the injustice that men received from the courts. 
Well, I would say that if they want to do some preaching today, they can in the same direction. But their preaching is for more tolerance towards the evildoer by the court rather than a defense of the poor and the godly by the court. So they are turning it upside down. Again, they preached against the exorbitant taxation whereby the poor were being steadily wiped out. And again, we're seeing this same sort of thing far, far worse than anything in the Bible. Because at least in the Bible, there was no property tax. And today we are seeing confiscation. But when they talk about uh, injustice to the poor, they don't talk about this sort of thing, you see. The injustice to the poor and to the godly that the prophets spoke about came from the state. Now they talk as though the state were the god and the poor had to be protected from us. And what are any of us doing to the poor except joining them? (laughs) (laughs) The reason that I brought up the word Humanistic justice is political justice. Its savior is uh, the state. Yes.
so that there is a very, very real continuity and a great similarity between the old heresies and the new ones. And you have the same kind of hatred of certainty today that you had in the Roman Empire. The demand for every kind of sexual practice that is forbidden, that was characteristic of the humanism then. It was a desire to break the old certainties of the law. Anything goes, you see. Again, you have the same thing. It's a repetition of the continuing humanism that has beset and plagued humanity since the fall. Yes? Well, Rex, that brings up the question to me, if all these heresies are always with us, what about the justice of the righteous and mean accord, such as against the Spaniards and the anti-Trinitarians uh, in the 16th century, and burn them at the stake? Um, what right do we have to do this? Well, I'm not uh, going to defend the Inquisition, because well, I, I would... I not the Inquisition, but uh, Calvin's uh, standing against uh, Servetus. Uh, well, all right, let's take it uh, in the case of Calvin and Servetus because uh, I can speak more freely there. However, there are some good books on the Spanish situation by Walsh, which are well worth reading. Although that's a more complicated situation. Now, Calvin was called to Geneva as a pastor. He was not a person who held any political office. So that the idea of Calvin as the dictator of Geneva who engineered the burning of Servetus is nonsense. It wasn't until Calvin was dying that he ever received citizenship. So he didn't even have the right to vote. Second, Calvin was banished once from Geneva before Servetus arrived there and when Servetus was there he had his bags packed because he expected to be abolished from the city any time. He was that insecure even when Servetus was there. Now what was the situation with regard to Servetus? Servetus was we would say a Unitarian. Now Geneva had kicked out the old bishop as its ruler and become a self-governing state and it wanted to be a Christian state. One of its problems had been that there was so much moral anarchy that the city was not functioning. Therefore, they wanted Christian law and order primarily because it was good for business so that the ruling element in Geneva was not too theologically minded. They were not too much interested in religion. For their time, as compared to this time, you would say, yes, they were far more interested than people in Washington today are, definitely. But their basic concern was they wanted an orderly state, a prosperous state. So they wanted social order. Now, they recognized that some kind of religious establishment had to provide that kind of order. Today, our religious establishment is humanism. It's not providing any order. And so its answer is going to be increasingly total control as the alternative to any order it can create. 
through the people's faith. Calvin was therefore called in to establish a basis of operation for the churches whereby they could educate the people, create a social order out of the social anarchy and immorality that had prevailed. Now, they were not going to allow Calvin too much freedom. In fact, he was never given the freedom that he wanted to operate in order to conduct the church. So you could say that the church never really achieved freedom in Geneva in Calvin's lifetime. But they did want him to establish order. Now, this meant, therefore, that they had adopted as basic to their community certain presuppositions, which were Trinitarian Christian. To be a citizen of Geneva, you had to hold to a certain faith. If you didn't hold to that faith, and you weren't to subvert it, you were overthrowing the constitution of the state, were you not? You were guilty of either treason or subversion. Now, in Geneva, there was a party, the Libertines. And the Libertines never published or freely revealed their hand, but they stood for the relativistic, anarchistic type of faith. And they worked secretly and powerfully to undo everything that the city council was doing. There, they even had power on the council from time to time, although their men avoided showing their hand until crucial votes. And they wanted to get rid of Calvin. Now, into this situation came Servetus. The scholars deny, who are humanistic, that Servetus was called in by the Libertines or that there was any subversive purpose in his coming. I don't think we will ever really know because there's too much that's been destroyed. But it's curious that Servetus came into a situation where he was, as it were, sticking his head into the noose. Because here was an explosive situation. A group of people trying to destroy and overthrow the government. And he very closely aligned to this group, the Libertines. And this group looking upon him, as it were, as a patron saint. Now, we cannot say he came in to work with them, but we can at least say it was peculiar and suspicious that Servetus came into Geneva when he knew that it was dangerous for him to do so. That he would very clearly be linked with every subversive force. Well, he was recognized and arrested. And of course, immediately the Libertines did everything to make this the test case if we can get Servetus acquitted, it will mean we have the power to take over Geneva. Now this was the issue. So, 
the case became a hotly contested one between the two factions. The burghers who governed Geneva and the libertines who wanted to overthrow the established order. Now, in this situation, Calvin was called in as a theological expert to deal with the ideas of Servetus. But he didn't know whether it was going to be Servetus' neck or his own. So, as I stated, he had his bags packed during the trial. And at one point, he preached what he thought might well be his farewell sermon. Well, Servetus was condemned and executed. And, of course, historians have made a great point of saying that uh, Calvin was the one who had him burned at the stake. And this is utter nonsense. And this, however, is typical of our history books. So, I think we need to... Uh, take our history books, whether they speak about Servetus or the Inquisition, which I don't, of course, approve of or agree with, with a grain of salt, because there is a vast amount of invention where anything Christian is concerned. But to say that Calvin had Servetus burned at the stake is simply not true. Now, uh, Calvin agreed with it. That's clear cut. Calvin knew what it was. What was at stake? It was revolution versus the order, the existing Christian order. And I think if we had been there, or if we had a similar situation here tomorrow, and we reached a situation where, say, some communist agent who came into the country was on trial, and the trial, in a sense, developed as a kind of a test case. And if they could get away with it, it meant they had broken the power of government. We would say, hang him. Yes? Now, it depends in which form we encounter him. Whosoever denies that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, John tells us, is an antichrist. I mean, it's a direct attack, right? It's very good that it's been, you know, all right. Yes, we, in dealing with such things, have to assess each one realistically. Our Lord tells us that we must be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. And he never asks us to do something where there is little chance of winning. We have to assess each situation concretely. There is no point in forever charging into a situation when there is no possibility of accomplishing anything. I cannot speak for this situation. I think each of us have to assess a particular situation as we know it, and those who are closest to it may know it best. But we have to assess each situation realistically. We're not here to make martyrs of ourselves or to take a beating. God doesn't ask us 
to do that. In fact, our Lord told his, told his disciples that if there was any opposition in one place to shake the dust off their feet and move on to the next, he wasn't asking them to stick around just to be punished. Well, this has this come in the form of you know, and you have to begin with those who are first of all involved, the students. If the students whose money is being taken against their will to publish the Daily Bruin will not protest, if a group of them will not head it up, then it's going to be futile because it's their money that's first of all involved. Yes? Can we go back to the one chapter where it says that you often translated as trespasses and uh, some versions do translate it as trespass it comes from a Greek word that has that complex meaning so that it can be translated either way Yes, that's an interesting point. I've never uh, noticed that before. 
that bothers me always uh, in sadness. Yes. Um, I'm to go confused on this idea of imagination and history. Now, when our liberal uh, historians write their version of history, is that imagination? Yes. They are reconstructing history in terms of their humanism rather than in terms of God's reality. Uh, do they know what they're doing, or are they basing all their research on other liberals? Is that really they know what they are doing. Yes, they know what they are doing. They are reconstructing history. For example, I think some of you have read the book Christ and the Caesars. Now, the one thing that is apparent in that book is that religion was basic to the Roman Empire. It was the religion of humanism, but it was political salvation by the state, by the emperors. It's also apparent that Julius Caesar saw himself as a messiah, a savior. But this is left out by the humanists completely. They know it's there. But they will not include it because they want to take away the religious dimension from life. They want humanism to be adopted but without reference to the fact that it is a religion. And they want to eliminate anything that refers, of course, to God. So their history is a reconstruction. And especially in view of the Marxist influence on historians, they see history as economic determinism. So they are going to rule out everything that is not conducive to their theory of economic determinism. They don't so far, existentialism has not, in its more modern forms, influenced uh, history. However, Marxism is a form of existentialism, and as Marxism, existentialism has influenced history writing very heavily. Yes. Well, our time is up and we stand this way.